Let us turn now to our scripture reading. It's coming to us from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. You may be thinking to yourself, I thought Christmas time was over. (laughs) But understand that the incarnation of our Lord has implications for us every single day. And though we may highlight it at different times of the year, it is still a beautiful thing that we reflect on. Um, it, it's, it's so crucial to our faith. And so let us remember and celebrate that now. This is Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, starting at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And even in the margin there it says, Blessed are you among women. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? Literally, I know not a man. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, And this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren, for nothing is impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May its grace be multiplied unto us. Let us pray and ask for that blessing now. Lord, we pray that you illumine our time by your Spirit to take in this word. Lord, we pray, giving thanks for the proclamation of the word. Lord, we even pray for Reverend Kim Kufus as he is on vacation. We pray that it's a time that he may be refreshed, that he may come back in due season, in due time, and proclaim the word all the more. What a wonderful privilege we have to hear its reading and to hear its proclamation. May my words be ever sown by grace and mercy and be true of what the Holy Spirit seeks to have the people know. Lord, be with us at this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated.
Dear Saints, this passage that we are contemplating today is one that, again, sometimes, quite unfortunately, gets relegated to only being discussed and pondered during the Christmas season, in which I believe is an, it's an appropriate thing to do. It's been the tradition of the church for millennia to do so. But it was never meant to stay in just that place. And the same thing when we think of the resurrection. It's not meant to just be around Easter, though highlighted at Easter time is an, is an important thing. But we should contemplate these things because this is a reality of the holiday that we celebrate every Lord's Day. It is something that we ponder every time we come together, and it really should be sown throughout our thoughts and our adoration of God throughout the week. But it's a time that we may come specifically to hear of its teaching, to, to have it really wash over us. And so this passage here has a lot to say to us in our day. One thing that I think it highlights is that sometimes we rely on the magical feeling of seasons and, and maybe we don't think of it literally as magic, but even as a child, how seasons come and go and there's something that's very delightful and mysterious to it and how those things fade. And then we find that our faith may often be rooted in something other than the Lord. Contrary to what we confess, we function that way. But the Lord knows. He knows that we are weak and needy as a people, that we too often glom on to the things of this world, which is why at times he will take those things away. And what naturally happens is we grow up and we become, well, the threat at least of becoming cynical and jaded can take place. Yet all these things can serve to point us to what is truly never fading. That we have been given a word concerning a child who's going to fulfill all things necessary for our salvation. Something that we may root our faith upon, that this child will live under the law as we fail to do perfectly and grow and become the man that is the model man, the second Adam, the truer and greater Adam. And so our theme that we can take from this passage, I believe, is that we must believe the word concerning this child. We must believe the word concerning this child. And we can see this by two points. First, by answering questions, who is this child? So the first question, first point, who is this child? The second question, or second point, answers, how shall we respond to the word concerning this child? How shall we respond to the word concerning this child? And so a bit of context of our passage today. Luke is very carefully, very purposely laying out the work of Jesus Christ on behalf of the people. And he's going to continue that work even into his other book, in Acts, where it will then be what the work of Jesus Christ, not on earth, but from heaven, is conducting and ordaining. 
But now he's writing to a man, Theophilus, to explain the importance of this Jesus Christ, this Jesus of Nazareth, and how truly special and important he is, above all other men. And so that's the context. And so very carefully, and as we will see, Luke is going to contrast the way someone responds to the word of the Lord in Zechariah, or as, as, as far as Zechariah or Zacharias, depending on what translation you're looking at, when he receives the word, and then the way the word is received by Mary. And so, this contrast is going to serve well to give us an application of what faith looks like. And so let's get to our, our first point. Who is this child? Now we know that it's, when it says the sixth month, you as the reader know something that Mary doesn't, and she was going to come to find out. But that what has all taken place in the first scene with Zechariah, we know has now come to six months later, meaning Elizabeth has conceived and is bearing a child, and she's in her sixth month of that pregnancy. And so verse 26 reads, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, God sends Gabriel, this angel that's mentioned here, very important angel, to be named in the Bible, comes to Galilee. It says a city. It's actually a very, very kind way of putting it. When we think cities, we're thinking maybe something larger. Of course, in the ancient world, we're not thinking maybe the hustle and bustle of, of a Milwaukee or Madison or Chicago. But we think of a city. That's a very generous way of describing Nazareth at the time. Yes, Nazareth now is a legitimate city. But Nazareth at the time was very small. Maybe, at the most, 400 people. It's not exactly a city, even by ancient standards. But it's a small place, and it's in the middle of nowhere. It's not even named in the Old Testament, which is why later the scribes and the Pharisees will say, Nazareth? Nothing good comes from Nazareth. Nothing comes out of Nazareth. This is a nowhere place. And we all know towns like that. I can name places down south where my family are, are near Trinity. No one's ever heard of Trinity, Alabama. You literally blink. You drive through it. You've missed it. And so, and we all know of those towns. Maybe you grew up in those towns. I grew up in a town that was a, a little bit bigger, but um, and by a little bit bigger, I mean it was swelling to the size of uh, 1,200 people. So massive <laughs> compared to at least to Nazareth at the, at the time, but not named in the Old Testament. This is a place that's unlikely for anything important to happen. The scribes can search diligently and they will find nothing concerning Nazareth. And so in verse 27, we see something, though, that does tie the Old Testament. Where, where is Gabriel sent? Or who, to whom is Gabriel sent? To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Recognize something there in that. We didn't get directly Gabriel was sent to Mary and then all the details about her. No, it begins with 
Yes, describing who she is, but it's describing who she's betrothed to, legally bound to marry. This is bigger than an engagement that we have in our context, though not unsimilar. So, the house of David, Joseph, there's something very important here. And as we will learn in a few chapters later, the lineage concerning Jesus is a lineage that follows through Joseph. It's the same thing with Matthew's lineage. It highlights Joseph and the house of David. But we should have alarm bells going off. The house of David. Ah, the stump of Jesse. David's house. Yes, that one that has been covenantally bound to God. That God shall bless. And what else we notice here? To a virgin. Named Mary. Remind Render her name Miriam. means excellent or exalted. It's a beautiful name. And it is a name that's very aptly given to her. I think sometimes we don't always think of what's in a name. What does the name mean? What's behind it? And perhaps Mary was named Mary and there wasn't much to it. It's a very traditional name, Miriam. The Hebrews would have been very familiar with that. Moses' sister, but... There's something here that's far greater. It's, it's redemptive. It's historical. There's something that's happening that God is doing. And so how is this virgin who's betrothed to a man of the house of David, how is she greeted? Look at verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And as I said in the margin, blessed are you among women. Now, this is something that's very important. We must recognize. The greeting may literally be rendered, grace to you, O one given grace. This is very different than what Rome believes. By the way, this is, and I'm not sure what backgrounds some of you come from. Maybe you come from a Roman Catholic background. But the prayer, Hail Mary, full of grace, is taken from a wrong rendering of this very passage. It isn't Hail Mary full of grace, as if she has grace of herself. That is a very wrong view. And nor would Mary want you to view her that way. She's your sister in Christ, not your mother in some large way as, as, as the Romanists view it. But no, it is grace to you. Grace is being pronounced as an apostolic greeting as we, as we know it. Grace to you, a one given grace, God is with you. Blessed are you among women. It's grace on top of grace. Nothing of herself. She has found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And of course, that last bit, blessed are you among women, that's repeated later when she's greeted by Elizabeth. The mother of my Lord has come. Blessed are you among women, she, to paraphrase. And then when she gives her song, which is often called the Magnificat, when Mary gives her Magnificat, so this song of praise, this hymn of praise to God for what, it, what, what is happening, that the Savior of the world is coming, and she exudes this joy and jubilation at what is coming, and what is coming by her womb, she says that every woman, every generation shall call me blessed. Now, dear saints, this is not something that we should be so reactive against Rome's idolatry of Mary 
to then diminish this dear woman. This is very important. No other woman has had such an important role in history. Not even Eve had this role. And she's called the mother of all living. But remember, Eve never bore the seed. It was promised to come, but she never did. And she thought she had. Much to her dismay, she hadn't. Remember, the Lord has given me. With the Lord's help, I have have brought forth the child. She was looking for the promise. And now the promise has come. This is the child that you've been looking for. This is the child that all of history has been looking for. So how does she respond? Let's look at verse 29. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Well, the angel is quite clear. Grace to you. Oh, gracious one. The one that women shall call blessed. Shouldn't be a good greeting. When we think of angels, perhaps this will help us. When we think of angels, sometimes we have a very wrong view of angels. We, we don't fully know of the grandeur of what it looked like to, to see angels. But I can tell you that when you read in scripture that people fell down to worship them on their face near the point of death because of how terrified they were. Understand that this isn't just some sort of simple-minded person from the ancient world. No, they were humans like you and I. They had complex thought and they fell down on their face and sought to worship whatever being was before them because they were scared out of their mind. They thought that they were undone. It was a frightening display. And so when she is trying to discern what kind of greeting this is, why is this angel here? It's not like a, huh, I wonder why this is happening. This is sheer terror. She doesn't know because if an angel comes and they do not pronounce blessing to you, you better prepare for your demise because they are coming to demolish you. Angels are not little babies with wings and little tiny heart bows and things like that. They're terrifying creatures. They're mighty. And so she doesn't say anything. She's in her own mind. What is going on here? Does this mean I die? Am I already dead, maybe? It's fearful. But notice what Gabriel does. Notice how Gabriel responds. In verse 30, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. Do not be afraid, Mary. And and notice this. For you have found favor with God. Yes, you heard me correctly. Grace upon grace is upon you. Mary, don't be afraid. God loves you. God is doing something in your life. And indeed, for the life of the world, you have found favor. This isn't favor that she has conjured up. Again, let us not fall into the idolatry of Rome. This isn't something that, oh, well, of, of course she was, of course she found favor. She was also virginally conceived, and, well, she's going to remain a perpetual virgin throughout her life. Well, the scriptures don't say that. Common sense 
sanctified by the Lord would say no. And so we see that this is not somebody who is goody two-shoes, Pollyanna, everything's great, and she, you know when she goes through the town, everything lightens up like it's a musical. No, we're talking about someone who has found favor in the eyes of God because of God favoring her. It's a wonderful thing to realize. And this is what's interesting. Just like in verse 13, it's, it's the exact same way. Fear not. Look at verse 13. So, because verse 12, back up a little bit. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. It's almost, it's almost the exact same thing. Do not be afraid. Saying their name, which is a sign of familiarity, it's a sign of, of to ease and comfort, and then what is going to happen for them. In this case, reiterating to Mary that she has found favor in the eyes of the Lord. There's grace there. And so moving down, now that Gabriel has alleviated the fears, at least to some degree, to Mary, he now goes on to the message, the heart of the message, which is from verses 31 to 33. Let's read that again. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The messenger has delivered the message. This is the word of the Lord. She will conceive. She will bear a son. His name shall be Jesus. And of course, Matthew gives us what that means. Jesus, Savior of his people. It's the name Joshua. Of course, in Hebrew, it would be more Yeshua. But Joshua, don't we know a Joshua already in the Bible? Don't we know a Joshua who crossed over the River Jordan after Moses has passed on to glory and the new leader who's raised up the only two righteous men of his generation, himself and Caleb, and Joshua is going to lead the people into Sabbath rest, or at least a promise of Sabbath rest that's going to come later. It's happening as an example, but it's going to come all the fuller when the true and better Joshua comes. Right now, every Hebrew who's hearing this story would immediately, I mean, could, you, could you imagine the chills running down the spine going, oh, Joshua, and Joshua again, or as we know, Jesus. Going down, it's this status. He'd be great beyond all others. What scriptures come to mind when you hear about this? He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. What are you thinking about that? What, what comes to mind? For me, as I was preparing this message, Psalm 2. Perhaps because I often think of Psalm 2. It's one of my favorite psalms. But Psalm 2 should come to mind. 
I have set my appointed and anointed king on my holy hill. This one that the nations need to come and bless and kiss his hand and give obeisance to. His relationship, son of the Most High, the son of God, the son of David. Again, because we know of the house of David, that God has promised to covenant with that family, to bring forth the Savior, the King of the world, and here he is. He shall be that one. Not just another type. He is the one that all the other types are looking forward to. All the other shadows. He is the one casting that shadow. And be bestowed a kingdom. The kingdom of David. Second Samuel 7. Psalm 89. You may be wondering, but he's not of the blood of David. He's not of David's seed. Dear saints, we have an analogy here of adoption. And I'm not sure how you view adoption, but I think sometimes in our culture, in our society, we don't view adoption in the highest sense. We, we, we value adoption. Don't get me wrong, we value adoption, but I don't think we understand the status that it brings. That adoption means that, no, you were not some other person's child, you were as if my child, as if I have begotten you, as if your mother has given birth to you. It's why in the ancient practice, and if you notice and especially in Genesis with the patriarchs, the, the, the wives of the patriarchs, they give the handmaidens, the servants, to conceive a child that they would be that they would be their own. It was an ancient practice when a woman was giving birth, and that birth was to be an adopted birth. The woman would literally give birth upon the lap of the woman who was seeking to have that child for herself, as if she was the one giving birth. He will be adopted by Joseph, raised as Joseph's own, along with the rest of Joseph's children to come. No separation, no distinction. Dear saints, this is why at the hospital or, or wherever you give birth, if it's at home or elsewhere, why they hand over the child to the father. This isn't because, or I mean, it's not just because a father wants to hold their child. Yes, you burn within yourself. Every particle of your being wants to hold that child, to cradle that child, to look in their tiny little face and to see the magic and beauty of begetting somebody. But no, it is also to show the ownership that I am the father of this child. This child is mine. And it's the same way in adoption. Joseph is handed the child. Joseph will be handed the child. And he will raise that child as his own, to raise him in his own craft as his own. He is adopted into the house of David. It's seamless. It is seamless. Over the house of Jacob, it says. Remember, Israel has been scattered abroad, destroyed as a nation. Judah and Benjamin only left, and they are subservient to corrupt kings, half-breed tyrants, as they would have seen them. But Jesus is going to unite the kingdom. 
not only the Jews who would heed the call to repent and believe in the Messiah, but also all the nations. It'll never have any end in time nor in border. The nations shall come to the mount of the Lord and bring their gifts and their offerings. Dear saints, that is us. Unless you have Jewish blood in you, that is us. We have been healed as the nations. So, dear saints, to summarize that first point, the word concerning this child has come. Who is this child? Well, we see that he is the one to fulfill all righteousness. Everything that the Old Testament was pointing towards is being fulfilled now in this child promised to come. So how shall we respond? What are we going to do with this information? And of course, we saw the contrast of Mary's faith contrasted to Zechariah. Zechariah does not react the same way. But we know that this response is seasoned by grace. Again, it's not her own merit. She didn't just conjure up faith in herself. No, faith has been given as the grace has been given. And she believes the message is grace upon grace. There's no mere moral challenge to have more faith. This is an exercise of the faith that is in you, that you must have grace in order to exercise. Mary could not exercise that faith if she had not been given the grace of God. And so, she asks a logical question. Out of faith. There's a big difference And I'll contrast this here in a moment with Zechariah. But in verse 34, she asks, not unbelievingly, as we'll see with Zechariah, with with skepticism, she asks a logical question. How is this supposed to happen? She says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Literally, I have not known a man. She understands that this is not referring to to just the time when marriage comes and she and Joseph will consummate that marriage. She knows this is something different. What is she witnessing about this? Who's going to be the father? And so contrasting that to Zechariah, notice the difference of faith in the question versus a lack of faith. And so, in verse 18, and Zechariah said to the angel, look at this, not how will this be, how is this going to happen? I believe you, how is it going to happen? But notice this, how shall I know this? In verse 18, for I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. How is that going to be? We should be hearing alarm bells of Zechariah's skepticism. It's not to say that he doesn't believe that God can do all things. But it's just in the same way that in Genesis chapter 17, Abraham heard the word, you shall have a son by Sarah, 
and he falls down on his face and laughs within himself, shall, shall a child be begotten by a man who's 100 years old? Will my wife, who is 90 years old, bear me a son? He believes, but he's skeptical of the means by which these things shall come. But Mary believes she has faith in the word that has been spoken. The word concerning the child, she has responded by faith. That's how she has responded. And so what does the angel do to answer her question? Look at verses 35. And the angel answered her The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born of you will be called Holy, the Son of God. So, the angel explains, and by the way, this is one of the few passages of the Bible that actually explain the the, the virgin conception, the miracle, the virgin birth being so necessary to our faith. The revelation comes, proof of how this miracle will happen, though still a divine mystery. And then what what does the angel say? What does Gabriel say in verse 36? And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. This is the sixth month with her who is called barren. A lesser miracle is given as proof of a greater miracle. Though Elizabeth is no virgin, she's been married for for, for some time to Zechariah, she's just as unlikely to give birth to a child now, and yet there's this lesser miracle given. Mary, your relative, your cousin, is six six months pregnant. That's the proof. It's answering her faith with the proof that she needs. Understand that we have a reasonable faith. We have a reasoned faith. We do not have blind faith. That is foolishness to think. As the atheists try to get us to admit, and unfortunately so many Christians do admit, faith is believing in something that that you don't know is true or not. No, that is not true. You have faith that is reasonable. It is true. It is provable. Whether or not you want to accept the proof is another thing. But all the miracle births that are coming, or that that came from the Old Testament, were coming to point to this miracle birth. They were lesser miracle births, the opening up of the womb, to the greater miracle. Man has labeled Elizabeth barren. It's set in stone to them. There's no way she can have a child. And yet, verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. This isn't an empty phrase on your coffee mug. This isn't a verse taken out of context. Like the one in Philippians, I can do all things, right? 4.13, I believe. This is the hinging point. Mary, everything that I've told you, the overshadowing of the Spirit, the the divine mystery of that doctrine, all of these things 
Elizabeth conceiving and being six months pregnant, all of these things is because nothing is impossible for God. It's not impossible for God in the lesser miracle of Elizabeth, and it's not impossible for God for the greatest miracle for Mary. Dear saints, above those miracles, I want for you to understand this very carefully. Above those miracles is the miracle of birth from above. That you have been born again in spirit, by the spirit. That you have been born again. That your heart of stone has been replaced by a heart of flesh. Dear saints, do you know that that's the greater miracle? That this child that has been announced to the world, the faith being displayed by Mary, is all pointing forward to the greatest miracle of your salvation. No matter what people say, you cannot deny that Jesus Christ has changed the world forever in a way that no man, no nation, no empire has ever done and no one ever will. That is the miracle. And yet, without the eyes of faith, your response is to be dumbfounded and to reject. And so what do we see? Mary's response, her, her next, what she says, she's asked the question. She, she, she responded by being afraid, saying nothing, pondering in herself what this was. Then asking the very, very realistic question with faith, how will this be? I know it's going to happen. How will it be? And then now to the point of how is she going to respond? She's been given the revelation of God through Gabriel. How does she respond? Look at this beautiful response. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Everything. I don't have to have my answers exhausted. I still have questions, but may it be. Thy will be done in my life. In the, what comes across in our English translations gets the point. It says, a servant, and the margin says, bond servant. Dear saints, here's an unpopular word that we are afraid to speak sometimes because of the connotations. She literally says to the angel, I am God's slave. Bind me in chains. To use the Old Testament understanding, drive the nail through my ear that I may belong to him forever. She responds in faith in the same way that Ruth responds when Naomi says, call me bitter, I'm leaving. And she says, I will die where you die. I will, I will serve your God that you serve. This is what's happening. I will be the slave to God without ever wanting, desiring, needing ever emancipation. Ever. Do you have that view? Do you understand that you've been called to be a slave to God? To the most benevolent master that you can possibly have? Because, dear saints, you are a slave to something if you are not a slave to God. Make no mistakes about it. Slavery is alive and well. Are we a slave to the things of this world? Or are we a slave to the one who is gracious and kind? The greatest master that one could ever hope and want. Because, dear saints, 
Whatever your choice is, there is no emancipation. Whatever you've been called to, there is no emancipation. It is for eternity. And so Mary's response here, the force is absolute. The resolve in her face to face the fears and the potential loss. Do you understand that she has so much to lose? She doesn't understand what's going to happen next. She doesn't know what's going to happen next. It's why Joseph in Matthew says that when he finds out, he's going to quietly put her away. Why quietly? At best, she's an outcast and a ridicule. Like the woman in Samaria coming to the well midday because she's afraid and so shameful for her sinful life. At worst, She's dragged out into the courtyard and pelted with stones until she dies for being an adulteress. That's what's at risk here. And of course, we know, we, we know, we understand that in God's providence and his divine sovereignty, he's not going to let that happen to the, to the mother of the Christ. But she doesn't know that. And yet she responds with faith. You don't know what's around the bend, dear saints. We don't know if we come to a time where they're going to be burning down churches and killing Christians in the streets, as it happens in some parts of the world. We don't know if we're going to be brushed off to the side, which is happening now. We don't know what vitriol is coming our way for bearing the name of Jesus. But will you respond with faith? Will you look to the example that you have in Mary, the examples, other examples in the Bible, and ultimately looking at not just their example, but what was the root of their faith? Will you take hold of that? Because we face uncertainties. Saints, I know you have gone through a hard time in the last couple of years. Personally, and as a church. But do you know that the child who is described here, the Savior of the world, that he is for you? That the word has come concerning him? Do you respond in faith to this? Because we're called to. Because if we respond otherwise, if we are skeptical, it only hurts us. Zechariah was mute for the time of the pregnancy. I'm sure Elizabeth was fine with that, but... But the point is, is that God's will is still being done. Do we with gladness go along with it and seek to see it go forth? Or do we fight with our skepticism, battling the flesh and feeling like we're losing? The answer for both of those things, it's like the Sunday school answer. Jesus is the answer. But it's true. We have a record. We have the word concerning this one. How will we respond? How are we going to respond to these things? Because Mary responded properly. Will we do the same? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you knowing that our faith is so often weak. We know that we are in need of being strengthened. Lord, help the saints here 
to know that when we open up the scriptures, we open up God's word concerning much. Singularly, we open up your word concerning our salvation. Lord, we understand even in a helpful way in our catechism when it says that the scriptures principally teach what we are to believe concerning you and what your expectation is of us. Help us to lean into that. Help us to do so with faith. Strengthen our faith where it is weak. Encourage us where our faith is, where faith is strong. May we never fall victim to prosperity in times of ease. Lord, help us to not fall prey to the magic of the seasons and, and the joy of our life and those things that can, though they are a good thing, but they, they can distract, Lord. We pray for your work to be done in our lives. Your will be done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.